real Navy SEALs of Newton Bible Church will show up tomorrow, right after. <laughs> That'll be the really strong ones uh, that show up tomorrow night and will endure it all. Well, I want to invite you again to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and as you're making your way there, I really, really enjoyed the time with Matt today and the pastors from the area, uh, just getting to talk through ministry and think through things together. Uh, That was really, really an enjoyable time, and then uh, enjoyed dinner tonight with the Busnitz family. It was really great uh, to meet them, and you say, well, which ones? I know that's what I'm running into. (laughs) Well, we really have enjoyed all of the fellowship that we have had with all of you. It's really been a rich time. Our family has enjoyed it. Uh, So thank you for all that you've done to make this such an enjoyable time for us to be here and to be among you. We had a great time with the young adults last night. I mean, we closed down Freddy's. So that's, uh, that's pretty big, don't you think? It was close to closing it down. Maybe some others were there when we left, but uh, we really had a great time. Good conversations, thinking about things uh, and just from a biblical perspective and how we can encourage one another. It was really enjoyable to get to know uh, more of the flock here. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 to 30 is where we're going to be looking tonight. So let me read those verses and we'll pray for the Lord's grace to guide us as we study these things this evening. Verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Let's pray together. Father, we pray for wisdom as we engage in this conversation over your word, as we look into the details of this passage. It is a helpful text to keep us from the kind of life that would perhaps breed a legalism that would be devoid of gospel life, or perhaps it would lead us into a road where we're not really trusting in Christ, but in our own development of rules and regulations not built around the word. So we pray for wisdom in how we think this through and in how we would apply it together for the good of your name among us, for our own soul's sake, for the sake of those among us and those who would consider the gospel claims of Christ. We pray for this help and this aid now. In Christ's name, amen. So you know it's only about, uh, in case you were wondering, it's about eight months, about that, till Christmas. Were you counting down? 
You said, why in the world are you bringing it up? Well, because Christmas fits this text. We celebrate Christmas. I don't know if you do, but we do. We celebrate Christmas every year. We actually put up a Christmas tree. We actually put up Christmas trees. Yes, we have more than one. It's really crazy, isn't it? And, but we do it at the right time. We are very, uh, very specific with that. It is illegal to do that before Thanksgiving, only after Thanksgiving may you celebrate. Amen? Any violators of that? No. So Christmas music plays in the house as we're putting up the tree. It's in the background. We put up all of the trees. I even donned the Santa Claus hat as we do it. I know, Santa Claus hat. We put garland with lights around our porch and around the deck in the back, and we put red tablecloths on our dining room kitchen tables. We put out the Santa Claus Snoopy, which our dog loves to chase after. We even put out the Santa Dallas Cowboy doll in the prominent place. I am from Texas, so it has to be there. Listen, I'm a Dallas fan because I have to, not because I want to, all right? It's just the way it is. Uh, I have all the little Coca-Cola Christmas polar bears adorning my home office as well. And perhaps that smacks of idolatry to some. And it could. We not only do that, we typically attend the performance of Messiah at the Kaufman Center in Kansas City where scores of non-Christians are going to sing scripture to us for hours. For some Christians, that is idolatrous. For some That is something we should not participate in. It certainly was against Christian conscience in the 17th century in America and in England where Christmas was not even acknowledged, let alone celebrated with any decor. It would have been participating in something akin to idolatry and false religion in the uh, 17th century, in the 1600s, because Christmas at that time was connected to the Roman Catholic Mass and hundreds of pagan rituals that had nothing whatsoever to do with the celebration of the incarnation of Christ. So Christmas was nothing but a distraction and a connection to idolatry. Now perhaps we should be more or less critical of these older generations of believers who abstained from cultural holidays because of their ties to non-Christian celebrations. But for 21st century Christians... It actually has very little to do with conscience. My non-Christian neighbors do not think that we worship ancient fertility goddesses because of our trees. That's never crossed their mind. In fact, they do not assume that we are affirming the legitimacy of anything non-Christian or anti-Christian in all of our decorations. We're just participating in the enjoyment of a cultural season and we happen to find much Christ-centered joy in doing it for which we find ourselves expressing continual gratitude to God for the gift of Christ that we celebrate during that season. But, on the other hand, we do not choose to engage in the fasts and celebrations associated with Muslim ideas behind Ramadan, which was a challenge for us a few years ago when we traveled to Turkey during Ramadan. But if we did, what would we be saying? If we did participate in the religious significations of Ramadan while we were in a Muslim country, what would we then be saying about what we believed? If I were in Central Asia at, that, at any particular time, particularly something like Ramadan season, my celebration of Christmas or acknowledgement of Ramadan might look a bit different if I was in those cultures. 
because of what I'm saying to others about Christianity and Islam, or the hearing that I, or hearing that I might be trying to gain my non-Christian friends and neighbors, I'm trying to have them listen to what I'm saying to some that might sound a bit inconsistent. But for us, we're simply trying to live out our faith within the constant cultural and religious tensions that exist around us. And we're going to feel those tensions again in our passage for this evening. The primary theme for this entire chapter will rehearse again. It's found in two verses. You know them. It's found in verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's the warning. But there is also an encouragement that is more positive. It's at the end of the chapter. It's what we'll consider tomorrow evening. So whether you eat, verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do everything to God's glory. And take careful look at yourself. Especially if you think you're spiritually strong. Lest you actually fall. You remember that chapter 10 actually gives us five different examinations so that we do not delude our hearts from true faith, but we pursue the glory of God in true faith. Verses 1 to 5, don't trust in the signs of unbelief like baptism or the Lord's Supper. The signs do not save. They are simply symbolic. They represent the substance of salvation, but we don't trust in signs. Secondly, abandon the behaviors of unbelief, verses 6 through 13. And we outlined those behaviors and said we can't trust in ourselves to stay in the faith. We must trust in the faithfulness of God. Last night we looked at verses 14 to 22. Flee from all forms of idolatry. Flee from all forms of idolatry. Tonight... We look at verses 23 to 30 that we've read, keep your freedoms free from idolatry. This is what we want to talk about this evening. This helps you look at yourself and pay careful attention to yourself, especially if you think you're spiritually strong, to take heed lest you fall. If you build a lifestyle built around what is not necessarily commanded in the scripture and you rest in that lifestyle not commanded in the scripture, you're building your life on something that will not spiritually sustain you. You are prone to fall. We want to look at that carefully tonight. How do we keep our legitimate freedoms free from any connection to idolatry, paganism, non-Christian ethics? How do we live in our liberties while also preserving our freedoms from connections to idolatry and harming perhaps the spiritual good of our non-Christian neighbors? Well, what we'll see tonight is that Paul provides for us four ways to live in legitimate freedom and free from idolatry all at the same time. Four ways to live in legitimate freedom and free from idolatry all at the same time. That's what we want to look at tonight. These four different ways to live in legitimate freedom and free from idolatry all at the same time. Let's look at the very first one. It's found in verses 23 to 24. Live for your neighbor 
Live for your neighbor beneficially. Live for your neighbor beneficially. Look again at verses 23 and 24. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, I want you to look at these verses carefully, especially if you're using, as I am tonight, the English Standard Version. You'll see the English Standard Version does something very unique. In verse 23, around the phrase, all things are lawful, it puts it in quotation marks. Do you see that? It's very similar to what we could see in chapter 6, verse 12. The same phrase is quoted, and what this likely is, the editors of the English Standard Version are telling you that they're actually giving you a bit of interpretation. This is likely a quotation from the letter that Paul received from the Corinthians. You remember I told you this book is wrapped around reports that Paul received about them in the first six chapters but responses to a letter he received from them in chapter 7 to 16. He's responding to their letter. Well, one of their catchphrases is this phrase, all things are lawful. And every time that Paul quotes this phrase, he counters it with but. And he then, he then gives his take on their phrase. He, know what's, he knows what they mean by it, but he comes back to say, but you must be careful with that. So he quotes them because they say all things are lawful, meaning we're free to do whatever we desire to do. We're in Christ. There are no more shackles of law around us. All things are lawful. Now what's interesting is that when Paul quotes them, he does not say they are wrong. He does not disregard the statement. He does not contradict the statement. Are we indeed free in Christ? Indeed we are. The, the old covenant law is no longer binding on the Christian. We're under the law of Christ. Now to think that there is no binding there or there's no commandments or obedience, be careful with that. But the law of the old covenant as a system is no longer the case for the Christian. So it's true, all things are lawful, but don't go too quickly beyond that, he says. But not all things are helpful. He quotes them again, all things are lawful, Paul comes back again, but not all things build up. So he quotes the Corinthians, but he also challenges them. All things are lawful, he says, but not all things are Helpful, that's Paul's response. Helpful means beneficial, profitable. Not everything is to the advantage of another, which begs the question, what were they thinking when they made the quote? They certainly weren't thinking about others. They're only thinking about themselves, which is a danger of freedom, isn't it? Freedom can make you think only about what you are free to do not what would be best for someone other than you. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 reminds us to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Literally, that's the same term that's used here for the benefit, for the benefit of others. Why does God gift you for ministry? So that you might use it for the helpfulness, the benefit, the profitableness of someone else. 
God does not give us spiritual gifts simply to benefit ourselves. Any use of any spiritual gift merely to benefit yourself would be a misuse of the gift. I mean, can you imagine having the gift of teaching and merely locking yourself away in a closet and preaching and teaching to yourself? What would the point of that be? If that's how you use the gift of teaching, you've misused it, correct? We need to think about how we're helpful. Not everything that we are free to do is actually helpful to others, like eating a meal in an idol's temple. You might be free to do that because there is no such thing as an idol, but it might not be helpful to others. To some, that might sound inconsistent. But for us, we're simply trying to live out our faith. We're simply trying to live out faith. We're trying to live it out in a way that's helpful to others. There are many freedoms we have in Christ and occasions exist where we may abstain from a legitimate freedom because we know it's going to help another person, primarily to help a non-Christian appreciate Christianity or not be distracted from Christianity. Not to assume that Christianity and paganism can be conjoined together. That's really the main idea in this text. So all things are lawful, but not everything that you're free to do actually builds someone up. Are you actually thinking about that? Are you actually thinking about how you're helping another, especially a non-Christian? He mentions this phrase again, all things are lawful, and then responds to it, but not all things build up. And he means by that primarily build up a conscience that affirms or appreciates or considers the gospel. The detailed dietary restrictions, the social restrictions of the old covenant, I think Paul would remind us those are no longer binding. We are not, friends, we are not the nation of Israel. We are the church that is displaying the law's intention in our obedience to Christ, not by our adherence to the old covenant code of conduct. Someone will ask me, Perhaps so, do you believe that the Ten Commandments are relevant for us today? Well, the Ten Commandments reflect the nature of God. In that regard, they are relevant. The Ten Commandments as a code of law are not relevant to us today as a system of law because they're connected to the Mosaic Covenant, which according to the book of Hebrews says, has been set aside by the New Covenant. We need to think not about merely keeping a dietary restriction based on an old covenant law. We need to think more about building up, especially an unbeliever, to understand the crux of Christianity and not assume that we affirm paganism by thoughtlessly engaging in our liberties. We need to think through things like where do we go for our entertainment, what we affirm and what we eat and what we drink we need to think about it. Now, we have to be careful because to think about and even limit ourselves in some forms or some expression of entertainment or food or drink is not to deny that we have real liberty. It's not a denial of legitimate, true liberty in Christ in regard to food and entertainment and attendance at public events or engagement in public policies and debates. But be careful. Living out your liberty could be a gospel hindrance. 
especially if the non-Christian assumes that you are actually in your participation in the liberties, you're affirming their unbelief. If you ever thought that my participation in this event would actually affirm a non-Christian to remain a non-Christian, would you keep doing it? Or would you say, no, it's more beneficial for them to hear the gospel, to see a difference in my limitation? Verse 24 sums it up. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. No one should continually seek himself, but seek the benefit of the other. Now, I think that can be highly situational. That will be highly cultural in its relationship. It has to do with your behavior affirming false ideas about God and discipleship in Christ. Does your behavior affirm a wrong idea about Christ or about the gospel? That's what's really at play here. What we need to be careful of is writing a new set of regulations for Christians. Be careful about making a new list of do's and don'ts that you apply then to every believer. Again, we're, we're not talking about things that are explicitly prohibited in the scripture here. Those are not liberties. When the Bible's clear on something not to do, that's not a liberty we're free to engage in. But when an acti activity has an overt, public, explicit tie to affirming false ideas about God and the Christian life, we're to avoid it altogether so as not to affirm falsehood, so as not to participate with, as we learned last night, the demonic. But the question comes up, what about all of the, that activity that's not so overt, not so public, behind the scenes? It may have some ties to false ideas about God in the minds of some, but not all. Well, you have to know your context. You have to know your context. You have to know what is being said by your participation. And that's not always clear. It's not always obvious but you need to make it your default position to not live for your freedom, but live for the eternal benefit of those around you. You need to think that through. Are you finding yourself more argumentative about what you are free to do, or do you find yourself willing to limit those freedoms for the good, the spiritual good of someone else? It's interesting, the Bible does say we are free, but most of the time it talks about our freedoms, it talks about how we might limit them, not how we might engage in them, and limit them for the spiritual benefit of another person. Now, you might, you might be ready for me to give you a list. Could you just make that more practical? Could I, could I just give you a list so that we could measure whether or not we're doing this right or wrong? Wouldn't that be helpful? You ready for the list? I'm not going to give you a list. I can't give you a list. It's not that easy. In fact, if I gave you a list, it becomes the new law, doesn't it? And live according to the list long enough, build it as a tradition long enough, and it becomes a standard by which you start measuring the righteousness of others. And as soon as you do that, the gospel of Jesus is not at play. 
So you might choose to forego drinking alcohol because you would lose all ability to serve a group of Baptists with non-scriptural views of alcohol. And over time, you might be able to, able to better serve them. That might be something you do. You, you just know there's a group of Baptists and they're not driven by what the scripture actually says about this. So they think you should abstain from it all and you choose to do that because you said, look, it's not that big a deal. And if it gives me opportunity to serve them and minister among them, that's what I'm going to do. You might do that. You might think, you know, if I was doing discipleship in a bar and I was drinking too much and participating in the non-Christian jokes and the sexual innuendos and the behaviors that, are, that the rest of the people are participating in, that might be a direct violation of Scripture and provides no opportunity at all to share the gospel with the lost. And so you choose to abstain. But, on the other hand, you might legitimately choose to drink the glass of wine with your non-Christian host in your host country of Italy who provided it for you in their, at, during a mealtime in their home. A woman may choose to cover her head while in a Muslim country, not because she acknowledges that Islam is legitimate, but she did not want to forego her ability to speak to others about Christ. But she may choose not to go and and kneel in prayer at the mosque with all the other Muslim women who have to pray at the back of the mosque and not in the center. More than likely, any suggestions that we brought up, and, and maybe you've got some on your mind, you say, yeah, I'm writing these down, they're coming up tomorrow night at the Q&A time, what about, what about? And it's, it's helpful to have those conversations, it's good to have those conversations, as long as you're thinking about them from a purely scriptural standpoint. Some of these suggestions that we could talk through, they might get a little bit under your skin. It might start to rub you the wrong way. And you may say, I have never. I would never. Why? Why? What? passage of scripture will you land on? What prohibition in the scripture will you go directly to? You dare not go simply to tradition lest you start to sound like the very leaders of Israel Jesus denounced. We can't simply start to lay down new laws and that's really how legalism starts, isn't it? Legalism in, in the Old Covenant Israel, even you know, by the time of Christ, it didn't start out as a bad thing. You, you know some of those laws that the Pharisees would uh, put in order, you can only walk this far on the Sabbath day. Well, where did that come up? Where did they get that idea? Well, what does it mean practically? I mean, how far can you walk on the Sabbath day? When, when does it become violating the Sabbath day? How much work is too much work? Well, to make it practical so that people would know what it looks like, you, you set a standard. Well, if you go this far, that's probably too far. Well, if that standard, that application of that biblical principle becomes the actual law and you then begin to determine someone's righteousness based on a standard, an application, and not the actual content of the law, you are now establishing a new righteousness 
a different righteousness. And not that which the law was pointing you to, but now one in which your small culture around you has adopted. Do you know how easy it is to simply rise to the level of comfortability of righteousness of those around you? Isn't that easy? And we can rise to the level of which everybody agrees to. And if anyone violates that, that is offensive. If anybody pushes that boundary, that's offensive to us. But are we really thinking this through in how it benefits others or simply the standard of which we have derived? There's going to be occasions and situations for giving up a freedom for the good of another person, but those occasions for abstinence does not need to become a new blanket pattern for all Christians or always even for yourself on all occasions. Freedoms don't trump eternal benefit, but make sure that it's an actual eternal benefit that you can put your finger on when you are limiting your liberty for the good of another. Living for your neighbor's benefit means you may not exalt your freedoms. You may abstain from some legitimate freedoms because their eternal good is more significant than your momentary enjoyment. And at the same time, one occasion for abstaining from a liberty does not necessarily do away with the liberty altogether. Beware of redefining a legitimate liberty because of a situational abstinence. Now that brings us to a second way to live in legitimate freedom and free from idolatry at the same time. There's a second way we live in legitimate freedom and flee and free from idolatry all at the same time. Secondly, enjoy your liberties freely. Enjoy your liberties freely. You can live for your neighbor beneficially, and that might mean you abstain, but secondly, enjoy your liberties freely. Look at verse 25. Listen to the Apostle Paul. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You, you might question that. I thought he didn't want them going to the idol's temple to eat because that would then be participating with demons. Is he contradicting himself here? Well, this likely is not talking about going to an idol's temple and eating the meal that is offered up to their gods. It's eating whatever is sold in the meat market. That's not contrary so what is actually going on here? Well, if you were to purchase food from the local store, the meat market in Corinth, that meat market was likely attached to that idol's temple. Most likely, highly probably, all of that food that you purchased from that marketplace, particularly the meat, came from the local idol's temple and was left over or used through the sacrificial system. It was dedicated to a god. Likely, from what we can learn from Corinthian culture, the very butchers that butchered the meat were the actual priests that offered the meat to the gods. So you buy the meat, 
that ribeye that you purchased, that roast that you're going to take home, was likely offered up to a pagan god. So just because it had been offered up, does that mean that it's off limits? Uh, That would go for almost all of the food in the culture. The vegetables, the meat, all of it would have been dedicated to a certain god if it was found at the marketplace. Paul actually says, no, listen, be careful. Just because you bought it at the open market and it had past connections to idolatry, and that's likely guaranteed, that's really a non-issue for you. Now, if you go to the idol's temple and you participate in a meal at the idol's temple as that meal is being dedicated to a false god, then you're participating with the demonic. But if you bring the meat home and you eat it in your own home or someone else's home that had, and that meat had been offered to the idol, it's of no concern at all. That's what he's saying here. Eat whatever is sold in the marketplace. In fact, this is actually in the Greek text the command. Eat it. Eat it. Eat it, and he gives a qualification, without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Without making any examination for the sake of conscience. Don't make the meat a conscience issue because it is not a conscience issue. I had an occasion to think about that when I went to seminary in Los Angeles Right across the street from us, just down the block a little way, was, was the largest Buddhist temple west of the Mississippi. And right across the street from the Buddhist temple was this wonderful, really wonderful Thai restaurant. Yes, Buddha was right there inside the door as you walked in. And I would often ask my roommates as we went to that restaurant, because it was really, really good do you think, and they would stop me right there. Do you think, where do you think that meat? And they they would say, the Bible says, do not ask. Do not ask. Eat the meat. Raise no questions for conscience sake. Now, if I went over to the Buddhist temple and I participated in their ceremony of dedication and ate it as a sacrificial meal to the God, that's different than going across the street to the restaurant and ordering some pad thai. One is participating in the worship of a false God. The other is simply sitting down for a meal. In fact, no one, no one who saw us go into that restaurant thought, ah, have you become Buddhists? No one thought that. The meat isn't spiritually tainted because of its origin. It's the occasion that could be idolatry. The meat does not equal idolatry. I could hear a Christian saying, well, I think you should be careful. It's probably better that we never eat meat again. That way we can always be sure that we have no connections at all with something that might be idolatrous. And furthermore, no Christian should ever do that. If they're biblically wise, and thus legalism begins. That's where it begins. If it is not an overt, public, identifiable connection with idolatry, then I'd like to quote Jesus to Peter. Rise up, kill and eat. Right? 
In Kansas City, we, we love that statement. Pork is good. Barbecue is essential. Eat the ribs. Pulled pork is of the Lord. I have verses to say so. What God has made clean, do not call common. Said who? The Lord of the earth, Jesus. Why? What would make it okay? Well, that's the quotation in verse 26. It's a quotation from Psalm 24.1. You can eat it because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth is the Lord's. Paul says that verse says, eat the meat. This psalm, Psalm 24, was typically used as a means of prayerful blessing, actually, by the Jews before they would eat a meal. If you go into the psalm and you read through it, you will see that the psalm asserts that everything on the planet actually belongs to and it comes from Yahweh the creator of heaven and earth. All the food is from God first and foremost. In fact, that's the way you should think of it. The food is from the Lord himself. Enjoy it to the glory of God as the creator and the provider of everything on earth. Enjoy it because you're enjoying God in a way that would exalt God. You should keep in mind, it is false religion the kind that demonically inspired uh, false religion comes up with food restrictions. For example, you know of 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's a really important text for us to think of in this regard, 1 Timothy 4. And it's that verse that talks about where false doctrine comes from. It comes from demons. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the sincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who, these false teachers, forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. How much is good? Everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. I'm regularly asked by people, well, what do you think about the Old Testament dietary codes and how we're to apply those? And I say, we don't apply those. If you look back at those restrictions, you will notice in the books of Leviticus and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those codes were to separate the worship of Israel from the worship of the pagan worlds. The pagan world had certain pagan associations with certain foods. Israel was to abstain from them so that they would not look like the pagan world. That is not the situation now, and we're not under the old covenant, but the new. And if the Lord looked at Peter in front of a blanket full of all of those foods he was supposed to abstain from, and he said, rise up, Peter, kill and eat, 
Who are we to suggest otherwise? Christianity, my friends, doesn't contain any food restrictions. Christianity doesn't. Now, unless you're allergic or encouraged to sin with it, I would say pull the pork, barbecue the ribs, consume the gluten to the glory of God. (laughs) Don't forbid a glass of wine. Don't require abstinence where the New Testament never requires it. We're not talking about personal choices that you make in avoiding certain foods. So you read the latest article that says chocolate is bad. And next year the article comes out and says, no, it's good. I mean, I've heard that about coffee. So I just choose to read the articles that say it's good. So I I get it. You might have certain reasons why you're going to abstain. Fine. If gluten makes your, your stomach hurt, don't eat it. If that's your decision, live in that decision for yourself and don't make a public issue of it. Especially, do not make a spiritual issue of it. Now again, we're not talking about avoiding what is wise for you. I know that there are some who come from past where drinking too much or alcohol abuse was a traumatic issue in their family and they're prone to problems and you say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have a drink, I'm not, I don't want any, anything to do with it, I would say, that sounds wise to me. That's wisdom. It would be unwise if you required that of everyone you've now taken it to another level. Don't make consumption of anything a conscience issue where the Bible does not make it such a conscience issue. Don't make participation in something a conscience issue where the Bible does not make it a conscience issue. Now obviously we live in the tension of pairing these two things together is quite difficult How do you live for your neighbor beneficially? How do you live in your freedoms freely? Well, you live for the good of others and you freely enjoy everything that God has provided. You you do the hard work in your heart to maximize those principles. But what we don't do is we don't create a new list of what fits each principle. We'll have to prayerfully, carefully consider every situation. On some occasions, we may choose to abstain from a legitimate liberty for the spiritual good of a non-Christian neighbor. And on many occasions, we will freely enjoy what God has given us to enjoy in this world because it belongs to him and we live in him. Those are two sides of the same coin in learning to live in legitimate freedom and free from idolatry. Let's look at a third way to live freely and free from idolatry. A third way. Number three, protect your liberties carefully. Protect your liberties carefully. Verse 27 
if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. This is really challenging. Keep in mind that Paul is not advocating avoidance of a liberty. He's advocating protection of a liberty by potential abstinence of it. This would have been a very common situation for Christians in the ancient world being invited over to lunch or to dinner with a non-Christian friend. I want to read a lengthy quote from one commentator that might put this in some perspective for you. This commentator says, Such dinners were extremely common and served as a key to establishing the social and political network that was essential to advancement and even social survival in a society. Any respectable person would hope to be receiving invitation to dinners in the home of others or hosted in other facilities, including the dining facilities which were incorporated into the precincts of some of the idol temples. To fail to receive such invitations would be a sign of social marginalization. To refuse to accept such invitations would tend to lead to social isolation. The problem and the reason Paul needs to address the issue is that even when such meals were primarily social events, there were almost always religious components that could not be ignored. The wine would almost certainly be offered in the name of Dionysius. And gods were likely to be sung to or honored in other ways. Usually some of the food at least would have been previously offered to a god whom, to whom thanks were being given for the joyful occasion of the dinner. So the Christian might ask themselves, should I avoid the invitation to dinner of a non-Christian because the food is likely going to be tainted? Well, verse 27 is direct. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, what does that mean? If you're invited and you want to, you want to go, what should you do? Eat whatever's set before you. And don't raise any questions. Do not in initiate an investigation as to the possible connections to idolatry that the food may have in the non-Christian's home. You don't go to their home and say, now before we have this meal. I have a couple of questions. You pull out your notebook. Has any of this been offered to the god Dionysius, Aphrodite, etc.? And you go down your list. And only if you receive the correct answer do you proceed to eat. Can you imagine how effective your gospel witness might be? So if you want to go, go. Eat whatever they put in front of you. And don't make a conscience issue out of anything that is put in front of you. I hear that alarm. But here's a hypothetical twist, verse 28. If someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. If someone. Now, 
we don't know exactly how this would come up. Perhaps there was a formal prayer that was made before the meal began and it was offered up to a god and it was dedicated and the whole meal was offered to a certain god. Perhaps it was that this non-Christian friend knows that this person they've invited has recently become a Christian or they're dedicated to Christ and they're explaining before the meal begins, I just want you to know so that uh, you understand this food has been offered up to another God. So what should you do if someone makes the meal a conscience issue? Then you avoid the meal for the sake of conscience. Or you avoid the item, and likely there were more items to choose from than just one, or you just avoid this one. I'll avoid the wine that was offered up to the the god Dionysius, the god of wine, but I'll have the steak because you didn't say anything about the steak. So you don't make, if if they make it a conscience issue, you don't eat it for conscience sake. But whose conscience? Verse 29, I don't mean yours but his, not your conscience. You know why? It's not a conscience issue for you. You, You're free to eat anything. You can eat anything because it all, you know, it belongs to whom? The Lord. You You can have anything. It's not your conscience that you're worried about. Unless it's an idol's temple, you wouldn't go there, but it's not your conscience you're worried about. Whose conscience? The host, the host, or even the others who might be participating in the meal with you, who may think that they're doing you a favor by telling you, if it is an overt, public, intentional connection to idolatry in their mind, choose to benefit them by not suggesting that you don't care about idolatry. You do care about idolatry, and you don't want them to think that you're an idolater. So say no thank you and choose the broccoli instead of the pork. You do it for their sake, not for your conscience. Now again, if a non-Christian is to become dissuaded of Christianity's relevance because you give an I don't care about, you, you give this I don't care about idolatry attitude in front of them, And so they remain a non-Christian and they're hardened in their rejection of Christianity or they assume that Christianity is just another path to some divinity. Then we've actually harmed them by our participation. Do you avoid participating in putting up a Christmas tree because doing so had ties to pagan religion in the past? If someone today assumed that you affirmed the ancient pagan worship of the goddess Saturnalia by your possession of a Christmas tree, then perhaps you shouldn't put it up. But I'm wondering how many of your neighbors are thinking they worship Saturnalia. I see the tree in their window. They're Christian and pagan all at the same time. How many people think that today? Probably no one other than legalistic Christians. Right? The likelihood of that happening is very, very small. Let me give you another thought. If you go trick-or-treating with your unsaved neighbor and their kids on Halloween, ooh, now this is a tough one, isn't it? (laughs) And they look at you and they say they understood Halloween to be a way to worship Satan. Well, maybe you wouldn't go then, right? If that's what they're saying. 
Not because it is, but because you don't want to affirm Satanism. But I've gone trick-or-treating with my neighbor and they've never asked that question before. I know, it's terrible. Pray for me. I mean, I took these children in the front row trick-or-treating with our neighbor. But they didn't say, oh, are you Satanists? They never thought that. They never thought that. In fact, we had a wonderful conversation together and built a closer relationship with one another and perhaps have laid the groundwork from which we might be able to share Christ. If you were to attach conscience issues to items that are not conscience issues at all for the non-Christian, or they're not conscience issues in the Bible, you may be suggesting the wrong thing about Christianity to your neighbor. If your homosexual son states to you that he is glad that you affirm his marriage as a legitimate marriage by your attendance at their wedding service, you may choose not to attend. Not for your conscience, for his. If you go to hear the Mormon Tabernacle Choir sing Messiah at the Mormon Tabernacle with Mormon friends, are they telling you while you attend how glad they are that you affirm Mormonism? You might not go at that point. Or are you simply going to listen to the music? The situations are actually endless, aren't they? And the principle is actually timeless. Your avoidance of the issue that is made known to you is not merely to help the unbeliever. It's also to protect your freedom. You don't want a legitimate freedom to be forever removed because you participate in it in a setting that affirms something unbiblical. To avoid an occasion where the friend is perhaps suggesting that you may want to pass up on a steak because it was used in idol worship may actually preserve your eating a similar steak in the future when such public associations are not being made known to you. We don't want a genuine liberty to be defined as a means of idolatry by other people. We don't want a non-Christian to assume idolatry is equal to our belief either. We don't want to make the assumption and say to others that there are many roads to God. There's one through the person of Christ. So we want to protect our testimony. And when you protect your testimony, you actually then protect your liberties. I think that's crucial in preserving our liberties and not participating in idolatry. Well, let's, let's look at a fourth and final way from this passage that we live in legitimate freedom, but we do not participate in idolatry. Number four, participate in your liberty, thankfully. Participate in your liberty, thankfully. Note the very first part of the, the latter half of verse 29, right after it says, I do not mean your conscience, but his. And then the next word is for, which means because. I do not mean your conscience, but his, because. If you give up a liberty in a particular situation, you do so to benefit the other person's view of Christianity. You don't do it to preserve your own conscience because they 
Don't control what is and is not a matter of conscience for us. Do you understand that? The non-Christian world does not determine what is and is not a conscience issue for the Christian. The non-Christian does not determine for all time what is and is not permissible. Now we may have to have further conversation with them about the issues at hand and choices that we might make. Our liberties are not defined and determined and controlled by the non-Christian world or a less than biblically minded Christian for that matter. We might choose to forego a liberty, but in doing so, it does not then become a non-liberty by nature. It's simply a liberty that is legitimate and that my conscience is still clear to participate in at another time in another setting that will not damage them. Don't kill legitimate liberties in your conscience because of someone else's conscience. You have to be very careful with that. Now, I might protect your view of my Christianity by abstaining, but I don't have to adopt your conscience issues when they're not defined in the Bible. You see, verse 30, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? I can do this with gratitude and thankfulness in my heart and so I shouldn't be denounced by doing it. On appearance, someone might assume that your abstinence means you think participation is wrong and so if you ever do participate, you'd be engaging in a wrong behavior. But that might not actually be the case. You may have simply avoided a legitimate and lasting liberty for a moment of benefit for someone else but the issue still remains a legitimate liberty and my conscience remains clear in participating in it in the future. So participate in your liberties. Engage in them with gratitude and thanksgiving, God-centered gratitude. And I'm sure that some would look at Paul and they would say he seems inconsistent here. He's avoiding eating in one sitting and he's partaking in another. For Paul, that's not a problem. It's not a problem at all. Do you remember verse 20, chapter 9? To the Jews, and he's talking about his personal behavior. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. And to those outside the law, as one outside the law, no, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Is that compromise? No, that's called evangelism. That's called living for the benefit of someone else to see the gospel in you and you're carefully thinking about how to best represent Christ in each situation. Now, just to note before we finish this up, this whole conversation here is not about offending the weaker brother. That's not what this is about. That's chapter 8. 
And the weaker brother is not someone whose conscience is different than you. The weaker brother is likely a newer Christian whose conscience has not been fully trained. And so you could not just offend them by making them upset with what you do. You could actually cause them to go back into their non-Christian ways by your participation. That's the weaker brother. But isn't it interesting how we live with Christians? They say, ah, you can't do that because that might offend this Christian over here, this brother or sister over here. They don't like that. Uh, You know what Jesus did with those things? If he found a, a Pharisee who didn't like what he was doing, what would he do? Exactly what they didn't like. You know when he did that? You remember Matthew? Went to Matthew's house, the tax collector's house. And Matthew invited all of these people over. And you know what they were doing? They were eating and drinking to the point where the Pharisees would say, this man is a glutton. He knew they they would say that. I think that's why he showed up at Matthew's house. He wanted to bring the gospel to Matthew's friends who were eager to hear the gospel. His conscience was completely clear. And he violated the conscience of the Pharisees to show them they are not mindful of what God is mindful of. He had no problem offending their conscience. The Pharisees were not the weaker brother. The weaker brother is the one who could slip back into idolatry and you want to preserve them from that. So be careful. That's not what we're talking about in this text. Now, I think it would be helpful that you take all of these principles, all four of these, they need to be practiced together. It can be dangerous, perhaps. You might look inconsistent at times. But this is a way in which to live in a manner that enjoys the freedom that we legitimately have to enjoy what God has given in this world and keep ourselves far from the realm of what is false. Live for your neighbor beneficially. Enjoy your liberties freely. Protect your liberties carefully. Participate in your liberty thankfully. Let's pray together. Father, I have no doubts that specific situations have likely come to our mind. And particular people perhaps have come to our mind. I pray we would not be arrogant. We would not be unkind in how we live with others. But I do pray that we would live confidently in you. We stand or fall before you. And we also recognize if we raise up standards of living that are really not defined clearly by the gospel, we're setting up a standard by which we could actually fall away. Lord, we want our conscience to be trained well by the scriptures. We want to enjoy everything in the world that you have for us to enjoy in the way that you think would be best for us. We want our life to be clear in its display of living for the glory of Christ. We want to enjoy all of what the world offers because this world belongs to you. We never want to be associated with the pagan world though. So Lord, we pray for wisdom. 
We pray for a kind of intentionality about our life that makes these decisions carefully. I pray that the way that we live, we would, uh, especially if they're issues of our own conscience, we would be careful before we bind others with them. I pray that we can live in such a way that, we, that others could look at us and they see us, that we're really struggling and we're working hard to maximize Christ and the gospel in our life. So, Father, we have great hope that you're going to use this well and in an encouraging way among your people for your glory. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.